0: A man with an impossible mission, a government base under extreme surveillance, and a plan just crazy enough to work. One man weaseled his way into Area 51, but did he find what he was after and evade detection? Or was he apprehended and exiled empty-handed? Today, that's what we'll be finding out. What is up, EWU crew? Area 51 is renowned as a highly secretive, densely guarded and utterly impenetrable base of governmental operations that many have tried to infiltrate to no avail. But what most people don't know is that one man determined to fulfill his personal mission to find answers actually managed to sneak in and stay for seven days in the meticulously monitored government base, evading detection the entire time. His tale is one of ultimate stealth, craftiness, and survival skills put to the test. And lucky for us, he documented the whole trip in a self-told series published in the Las Vegas Sun. We will be delving into the almost unbelievable excursion of Jerry Freeman, an archeologist and explorer who wouldn't take no for an answer when it came to uncovering the truth. Just before departing, he said of his motivation for the dangerous journey, quote, the siren song is deafening. I'm smitten by the forbidden fruit. Archaeologist and anthropologist, Jerry Freeman of Pearl Blossom, California was 55 years old in April of 1997, when he decided to make his unauthorized trek through the restricted Area 51. He was an experienced adventurer one who always saw his passion projects through to the end. And his latest project was his most ambitious of all. He wanted to traverse a specific route in Nevada in order to find never before seen clues that could unlock important details about history. The only problem was this trick required him to go straight through the prohibited land of Area 51. Yet this didn't deter him. As part of the preparation for his trip, Freeman contacted the Las Vegas Sun. He reasoned that if his plan were to be discovered by authorities preemptively, he would surely be arrested or prevented from going through with it. Therefore, his solution was to speak with a trusted but neutral third party so that someone official would know where he was and why he had gone. As a seasoned explorer, Perhaps Freeman was simply taking a safety measure to ensure that search parties would come looking for him if he didn't return and needed rescuing. But perhaps part of his motivation was a different goal altogether. The excitement and heart pumping reality of boldly announcing such an outlandish plan. I want the Air Force to know there's nothing sinister about what I'm doing, he told the Sun. I'm not interested in the military or technology I'm interested purely in the history and culture of that site and this artifact. I'm an archeologist, that's all I am. But what was this mysterious mission driving Freeman to partake in such a risky mission? It's true that the information he sought was an exclusive treasure that could only be found within the depths of Area 51. But his fascination didn't stem from a desire to catch a UFO sighting or to meet a real life alien Rather, it was rooted in a notorious event back in 1849, the passage of the famous Death Valley 49ers, a tale that has gone down in history due to the incredible resilience the party members had to muster in order to conquer the unforgiving obstacles in their way. In a recorded segment from a call-in radio show hosted by Art Bell in the late 90s, Freeman himself can actually be heard explaining why this old American story compelled him to sneak into Area 51. The radio program was open to calls from Area 51 employees, but Freeman called in anyway to share his compelling experience.
1: I'm the archeologist who slipped into Area 51 last year. Well, I hiked in there for a hundred miles. I was in there over a week. Um, Was so far into Area 51, I could actually see out the other side. In fact, contemplated doing so. I will say this: uh, it, it was the uh, mind boggling thing I ever did in my entire life. Look, look. Why, first of all, did you decide, as an archaeologist, what was of interest in Area Fifty at Area Fifty-One? I was following the Death Valley 49ers, a wagon train that got lost uh, back in 1849. And no kidding? Yeah, they they left, uh, they took a shortcut, the fated shortcut, as it turned out. Uh, and they went directly right through the center what, of course, you know, legions of UFO people believe is Area 51. And
0: so you were simply following their trail, and the trail led through Area 51? That's correct. These pioneers made the arduous trip across America by covered wagon, leaving the Eastern US to chase the tantalizing promise of prosperity offered by the California Gold Rush. You probably know the tragic story of the Donner Party, who became hopelessly trapped in a mountain snowstorm after attempting to take a shortcut. They were later forced to resort to cannibalism after members began horrifically dying due to the harsh conditions and shortage of supplies. The pioneers of 1849 who made their own journeys just three years after the 1846 Donner Party, were extremely mindful to learn from that cautionary tale and avoided making the same mistake at all costs. But ironically, although they steered clear of the snowy peaks, these travelers too would end up lost, disoriented, and struggling to survive. This time in the hot desert sun, The story goes that these 1849 pioneers making their way west had reached the Sierra Nevada mountain range too late in the year to make the crossing safely. That's when a tempting alternative option was presented to them. Word was circulating that some groups were opting to take the old Spanish trail, a route that skirted the Southern edge of the Sierras, meaning warmer weather, more stable terrain, and presumably, a path that was safe to travel even in the encroaching winter. Despite the lack of proof that this trail was safe, a group led by the experienced guide Jefferson Hunt decided to make the trip. Although he had successfully completed this trip before, Hunt made the decision to take an unfamiliar shortcut, a choice that if they learned anything from the Donner party was never a good idea. When the group was unable to find water along this new trail, they were forced to turn back to the original plan. But this foolish risk was a costly mistake and they had lost seven days and valuable supplies in the process. After that, conflicting opinions and claims of an even better allegedly time-saving shortcut that was supposed to chop a whopping 500 miles off the journey resulted in the pioneers splitting up. This rumored route seemed too good to be true. And those who broke off from Hunt's group to pursue it soon found that to be exactly the case. They came face to face with a staggering Canyon that they had no hope of crossing by wagon. While most were discouraged at this devastating outcome, a select few decided to push on. Their relentless spirit paid off. And after a few days of traveling, they found a path around the canyon, but they weren't out of the woods yet. Their travels into the Nevada territory soon led them to the Groom Lake-Papoose Lake area, a landmark located in what is now Area 51. Here, yet another dispute was raised. In desperate need of water, one group suggested that the best plan was to head south for a snowy mountain where at least the land wouldn't be so dry and harsh but the other group disagreed. They stuck firmly with the original plan, unwilling to make any more diversions from the path out west. But even after deciding to go their separate ways, fate would have it that the two groups would eventually meet again and continue on together, bringing them to what is now Death Valley on Christmas Eve of 1849. Although the parched pioneers found temporary relief in a much needed snowstorm that was able to quench some of their building thirst, the worn down group and their exhausted animals were in bad shape. They became desperate. Splitting up again, some chose to abandon their battered wagons, containing all the possessions they had already suffered so much grief to maintain with them this far. Instead, they left them behind in the desert to continue on foot, slaughtering their oxen and using wood from their scrapped wagons to make jerky as crude sustenance. They may have been on their last legs, but this group was just able to successfully complete the journey and finally put an end to their days on the road. The others weren't so lucky. After a failed attempt to cross the intimidating Panamint mountain range, the last formidable barrier before civilization, they were forced to turn back and remain in the valley. While two able men were trusted with the great responsibility of continuing on ahead to secure and bring back supplies for the stranded pioneers. After a month and 300 miles of walking, the heroes rode back to their waiting comrades with little to boast but a one-eyed mule and three horses. One horse died during the strenuous journey and the other two couldn't keep up and had to be left behind. So with the resilient mule and a smattering of hard-earned supplies, the two saviors returned, but they found things worse than they had left them. Most of the pioneers had grown impatient or perhaps they had given up hope that the two scouts would return. Many had already departed in a desperate search for escape by the time the scouts returned. But two families remained in the valley to welcome the returning men. And together, the ragtag group barely made it out alive. They were eventually rescued by Mexican Californios cowboys. In total, it is reported that 13 travelers lost their lives taking this false shortcut that ended up adding months to their expected journey as they left behind the cruel desert that had caused them so much suffering, one pioneer was quoted as saying, goodbye, Death Valley. This became the story of how this infamous location, one of the hottest places on earth, was given its unnerving title. It was this historical significance of scrappy American willpower that inspired Freeman to adopt the same mindset and trek the exact path that those brave pioneers had blazed through a century before. This is part of our American heritage, spoke Freeman. I believe I have a right to see it. It was recorded in the pioneers journals that on the way, they had actually made seven inscriptions along the path to mark their passing. His quest was to track down the final missing inscription made in 1849 by one of those weary travelers said to be located on the wall of Nye Canyon. More than that, he wanted to gaze upon Papoose Dry Lake with his own eyes, as it was the last location that the famous Lost 49ers camped as a group before their inevitable split. He later wrote, the catch was the lake in the canyon lie deep within the most guarded real estate on earth. The US Air Force's Nellis Air Force Base Gunnery Range Dreamland as it is known to military pilots and Area 51 to legions of UFO buffs. Freeman was no stranger to recreating the pioneers journey. As just one year earlier, he had led five people across 330 miles of the 49ers original route, a taxing trek that had taken 32 days in total. The excited crew had even managed to find one of the seven elusive inscriptions that had remained completely hidden and undocumented until their discovery. They had accomplished the great feat of seeing all the inscriptions with their own eyes in person, all except for one. An old photo of the seventh inscription existed in books, along with an account of its alleged general location. Freeman couldn't rest until his dream was seen through to the very end. He once said, when you start a project, you hope to bring it to a conclusion. If you leave gaps in it, you don't have a sense of fulfillment." But authorities had differing opinions when it came to this potentially dangerous trip. The National Park Service and the Bureau of Land Management were receptive to Freeman's lofty goal, and the Department of Energy was kind enough to agree to the explorer's request to grant supervised access to certain parts of Area 51 that were integral to the expedition. Most understood his plight, but still, the US Air Force, the most influential organization when it came to the approval of Freeman's Wish, was less than eager to give the go ahead.
1: And I pleaded with the Air Force uh, for, oh, several years uh, to allow my team access uh, to several archaeological sites uh, one of course is uh, Papoose Lake uh, that's Papoose Lake yes critical uh, uh, archeologically because that was the last campground uh, of the 49ers where their cohesion
0: failed there uh, they went different directions in a you know an attempt to escape the the desert according to the sun the air force quote ignored or sternly rebuffed all efforts by freeman and his supporters to gain even limited access to the military base In fact, even when the desperate archeologist enlisted the help of his congressman, he was still similarly rejected by a reply that allegedly stated that the Air Force, quote, will not allow nor will they ever allow anyone access to the area. Freeman later maintained in hindsight that he had tolerated this opposition and remained patient and calm for a substantial time. He wrote that he was naively, quote, hoping that at some point in time, the base commander would call me up and say, hey, Jerry, we have a little downtime on such and such date. Come to the gate and our base archeologist will run your team in there for a day and see if we can locate that inscription. Your research is commendable, glad we could assist. Obviously, this ideal scenario never happened and Freeman realized it never would. Well, so much for fantasy, he mused in his son published series, continuing. Now the choices were truly limited. Forget about this critical phase of the 49ers Odyssey and be content with armchair research or contemplate the unimaginable, unlawful entry. Freeman chose the latter. The Air Force's staunch refusal did not stop him. And he decided that he was going to go through with the Trek with or without their support or even their knowledge for that matter.
1: You were refused permission a number of times, and then at some point you decided to hell with them you're
0: going in anyway? I cast reason aside and I admit it, but I'm not sorry I did it. There's no better way to understand the trials and tribulations Freeman went through than his own account, as detailed in the Las Vegas Sun series. His first entry is dated Tuesday evening, April 22nd, 1997. Freeman starts, I stood alone beside the rusted metal barricade, marking the end of public land. An hour earlier, I watched my brother's car disappear down a faint desert track, high in Nevada's specter range. After a quick handshake, Doyle was gone. Dusk was near and using his lights this close to the border was not wise. Fidgeting with the straps on my 50 pound pack, I convinced myself I was only waiting for the moon to rise a little higher before setting out when in fact, I was afraid. The enormity of what I was about to do eroded my courage. Finally, taking a deep breath, I stepped across the barrier and into the forbidden zone." Freeman goes on to explain that the seventh inscription is said to be carved onto a remote canyon wall high above Papoose Lake. He took the time in this initial entry to explain why he was corresponding with the Las Vegas sun, writing, I felt it was necessary to establish a link with the media just in case the wild rumors about trespassers disappearing were true. He also kept a cell phone on his person explaining that, if arrest appeared imminent, I would broadcast my position and circumstances and no way would I flee or resist attainment. Reading these personal recollections, it is clear that Freeman knew what he was signing up for from the beginning and was fully prepared to face the consequences. He made sure to take enough precautions as he had heard the stories of people entering Area 51 and never being heard from again. Claiming to not have a death wish, he took a cell phone along and promised to leave coded messages of his whereabouts. He went on to say, "'The base is rumored to be protected by ex-Navy SEALs and Delta Force personnel. Should I vanish into thin air, a victim of excessive military exuberance, the government would have to extend a reasonable explanation. He signs off this introductory entry by acknowledging the magnitude of trust he had placed in the reporters at the Las Vegas Sun, who were, as he puts it, one phone call away from having him arrested. He says his fear dissipated as he strode into the exhilarating but comforting wilderness and that his first goal was finding a viable water source. In the wee hours of Wednesday morning, Freeman got to work climbing the steep face of Skull Mountain, knowing that a spring sat just on the other side. But then he got careless, and before he knew it, he was faced with a daunting sight. I stopped dead in my tracks. There before me, swallowing up the entire valley, lay an eerie, strange facility unlike anything I'd ever seen before. Slipping into the cover of nearby cacti, Freeman grabbed his binoculars and frantically raked his mind, thinking he must have made some error or miscalculation that led him to this huge facility. But using his compass to triangulate his position, he came to the chilling realization that he was indeed in the right place. I coined the place, the city of the dead, because it appeared to be abandoned and initially, I could see only bizarre looking structures and portable trailers. The entire valley was filled with them." With a sinking feeling, Freeman accepted the truth of his situation. The massive facility he saw below, which was littered with guards and occupied vehicles, was like a huge blockade standing between him and his desired spring. At a loss for how to proceed, Freeman tried to get some much needed sleep in the cover of the foliage. Awakened a few hours later by the loud whirring of helicopter blades overhead, a nervous Freeman devised his master plan. He would pass through under the cover of night. Briefly, he considered backtracking to avoid the Institute altogether, but quickly decided this was the fastest and therefore only way. Water was a major consideration also, he wrote. I needed some now. As night fell and the valley was enshrouded in darkness, Freeman made his move. The most efficient path was a straight line, but soon he was faced with the reality that this was easier said than done. He wrote, what would have been a 45 minute stroll became a five hour ordeal of heart stopping suspense I felt like a bad actor in a prison break movie. Armed guards were everywhere, checking gates, circling structures, winding their way along the dirt roads that weaved in and out of my hiding places. I held my breath as powerful lights lit up the surrounding brush, raced for better cover when they faded. Did they suspect my presence? As he painstakingly inched through the valley, swarming with security, Freeman noticed a particularly highly guarded building. He described that it was constructed of block and surrounded with chain link. He says that a single window, which was too high to see into, emitted a radiant pulsing glow. But Freeman had no time to inspect the building, nor was that his purpose in the first place. He continued on climbing out of the desolate clearing, narrowly evading detection by a quiet security vehicle and ultimately was forced to tread right alongside the paved road in order to reach the spring. But before he was home free, he walked right up to a barricade barring the entrance to the Northern end of the complex. Freeman wrote, it was lit up like a Christmas tree and surrounded by a cacophonous din that grew louder the closer I came. The noise was coming from its power source, a generator, a ponderous gasoline-driven behemoth on wheels. Working clockwise, enormous strobe lights alternately turned points of the compass into day before switching instantly to another location. Who are they expecting? Carefully navigating around the strobe lights, Freeman timed his movements to avoid being seen, lying flat when they threatened to give him away and running forward with all his might when they were momentarily turned. Once he made it through and got a chance to catch his breath, he read the sign emblazoned nearby. No trespassing, violators will be prosecuted, camera exclusion area, badged personnel only, no firearms, cameras, phones, or binoculars by order of the LA NLL Corporation. Only after he later returned home and did some digging would Freeman make a shocking connection L-A-N-L-L stood for the Los Alamos National Laboratories Limited. Freeman wrote, they're the people who gave us the mother of all government secrets, the Manhattan Project, which resulted in the development of the atomic bomb. I shuddered to think what these guys were working on now. It was 3 a.m. on Thursday morning, when Freeman finally managed to secure shelter in the same old miner's cabin that had saved the lives of the Death Valley 49ers so long ago. He had made it to the spring and after a night's rest and a hearty breakfast, Freeman filled up his canteens and plowed on. Although he had planned to avoid traveling by daylight at all costs, the unpredicted events of the previous night had left him behind schedule. And so Freeman anxiously walked on in full visibility fearing the very real possibility of being detected each step of the way. Happening across a sign that read, danger, potential crater area, keep out. Freeman realized that he had arrived at an old atomic test center where an underground nuclear facility had once carried out experiments. He hurried through the treacherous area that he knew could give way any moment and cause him to plummet hopelessly down into, quote, plutonium hell. His only temporary relief came from the secure knowledge that no guards would be present in this dangerous and hazardous spot. Noting a peculiar area that lacked any vegetation, Freeman decided to throw some hefty rocks into its pure sand center. He says they disappeared without a trace. As his third day in area 51 came to a close, Freeman found accommodation in a stranded ship in the middle of the desert. He guessed that it had been a trawler slated for atomic destruction and post-mortem analysis before being abandoned for some unknown reason. He signed this entry off. I spent the night on its decrepit stern, cruise anyone? Friday saw Freeman venturing into even more frightening territory as he left behind the dubious comfort of the land under the Department of Energy's jurisdiction and crossed into the Air Force Nellis Base bombing gunnery range. He wrote, I could feel the hair stand up on the back of my neck. This was the dark side of the moon or as one government archeologist had told me in whispered reverence, the black hole. I had crossed an invisible line into a non-existent area Freeman says that this area saw the creation of the supersonic Aurora fighter plane and that it held, quote, the Air Force's fabled collection of alien spacecraft stored in nine hangars beneath Papoose Lake's alkaline shore, a top secret realm, I'm told, bristling with underground sensors that detect an intruder's presence immediately. And if the transgressor is so foolish as to continue, he is certain of a passport to oblivion. As luck would have it, Freeman was soon alarmed to realize that his phone had stopped working in the isolated location. But if he climbed high enough, he was able to send short cryptic texts to his correspondents at the sun, letting them know the status of the mission. Okay at 50 meant that the first half of his journey was successfully completed, for example, while the word mall was code for test site He said that while many had later questioned why authorities couldn't trace his phone, the convoluted geography made the possibility of a quick and precise trace unlikely. Nonetheless, he used a rope to summit a nearby cliff and was finally able to touch base with his friends back home. He told Doyle, his brother, who was set to pick him up after the trek, quote, "'If I was not out by midnight on the 30th, I probably wasn't coming out. I was either lost, hurt, captured, or dead. He phoned his wife, Donna, to tell her he loved her. She had been against his going in the first place. Then he told the reporters from The Sun, Jerry at the mall, looking for jewelry, the code for the 1849 inscription, at 50%. Low on water, keep the faith. Then Freeman huddled in for the night precariously strapped atop a narrow ledge at the high summit. Much of Saturday's account is dedicated to Freeman's own musings about the motivations behind his mission, why he had risked it all to come here in the first place. And the intimate glimpse into his mind is intriguing. He writes, how ironic that 150 years after the 49ers passed, I'm desperately dodging my own country's militia just to see the places where they labored so valiantly. These were not military people. These were not mountain men. They were just people like you and me, dreaming of a better life for their husbands, wives, and babies. Overflowing with joy, he reached the destination of Papoose Lake, which he called the most restricted place on earth, before going on to remark that, the aliens appeared to be in short supply, So were the ex Navy SEALs who were supposed to be protecting this place. Nonetheless, he did find amusement in watching a Black Hawk helicopter chase away overstepping tourists in the pitch black night while he remained undetected. Looking down at the lake, Freeman was overcome with a sense of respect for the struggles of the lost 49ers in this exact spot. He explained, that innocuous lake bed below me was of pivotal importance to their survival. After journeying nearly 2,000 miles since leaving the verdant cornfields of the Midwest, a hundred men, women, and children gathered together here for the last time. Following contentious debate, their remarkable cohesion shattered, never to be mended. The group that stayed, said Freeman, had reported carving the date into the wall of Nye Canyon to commemorate their passage. In my pocket, I carried a weathered photograph taken more than 50 years ago of that inscription. Would I find it? Wrote the tired explorer, driven forward only by his unrelenting hope. Sadly, Freeman's very next entry revealed that his search had been utterly fruitless. Combing the vast, endless canyon walls for one tiny, presumably weathered inscription was like trying to find a needle in a haystack. He lamented that if he had a larger supply of water to keep him going, he may have been able to stay an extra day and have better luck locating the artifact. But Freeman was an experienced outdoorsman and as much as he may have wanted to throw caution to the wind and stick it out a little longer, he knew it was time to make the long return journey. However, he didn't retreat completely empty handed. He did find one significant relic, an oxen shoe. To Freeman's knowledge, only the 49ers had ever driven oxen through the Nye Canyon. And having only seen similar recovered oxen shoes displayed in museums before, the archeologist was at least comforted by this unique and unexpected discovery.
1: I'm sorry I didn't find the inscription. I did find evidence of the wagon train, however, and I did get within a mile of the lake bed at Tapu's Lake. Um, oh, my. Now, there's no known photograph, of course, of Tapu's Lake, except from Mont Sterling, I believe, 50-some miles away. There's computer-generated photographs, of now, course. did you have a camera with you? Yes, I did, and, uh, and I've you... got uh, magnificent color photographs of this place. And uh, What have you done with these photographs? I have done nothing with Uh, I intend and I I have a book proposal with the Jeff Herman Agency in New York. Uh, The book will be called Forbidden Journey. And I I hope to include those photographs, but I will not do so, you know, until I'm assured that. And I don't believe they will uh, show anything uh, that would, uh, you know,
0: compromise national security. But still, Freeman didn't have much time to celebrate. As he was 22 miles from the spring haven that had provided him with water and shelter, Freeman was starting to get worried. He had depleted his water supply and his phone battery was dead. With no other choice, he reluctantly ditched his $200 binoculars, phone, and extra canteen, his sleeping and cooking gear, extra clothes and provisions, and got ready to travel light and fast as soon as the friendly cover of Nightfall greeted him. Parched and utterly afraid of dying of dehydration, Freeman stopped at the Department of Energy's Atomic Waste Storage Yard, where he found a hose on the side of the building and drank to his heart's content. Later remarking at how trivial this thirst was in comparison to what the lost 49ers must have gone through, Freeman shared a compelling quote from Juliet Breyer, a mother from that pioneer group. She once said, "'Many times I felt that I should faint, and as my strength departed, I would sink on my knees. The boys would ask for water, but there was not a drop. Night came and we lost all track of those ahead. I would get down on my knees and look in the starlight for the ox tracks and then we would stumble on. Compared to this suffering, Freeman laughed at his own experience. He didn't seem to pay much mind to the fact that he had drank water from the hose of an atomic waste facility of all places but future theorists would call attention to this detail, citing it as a possible cause for Freeman's health issues down the road. But after some close calls with security, a deliberate avoidance of that frightening facility he had nicknamed the City of the Dead, and a couple wary days on high alert, Freeman caught sight of the perimeter. He wrote, I just wanted out. I wanted to shake hands with someone who wouldn't shoot me first, His final moments inside Area 51 were pivotal. He knew that he couldn't afford to let his guard down, not when he'd made it this far unnoticed. The border of the government base wasn't the place to relax or get careless. 200 yards to go, Freeman wrote. I crawled and crawled, stopping only when cars could see directly down the wash as they passed. At 100 feet, I took off with no vehicles in sight, I ran up the hill, not looking back and threw myself over the crest. With security waiting for me at the pickup point, I peeked over the top and caught sight of a white vehicle. I hid my gear and looked again. It was Doyle. The brothers reunited and walked together back to the waiting car, saying nothing until safely on public land once again. After a period of stunned silence, Freeman spoke. Was this a mistake Doyle? Raising a canteen in the air, Doyle triumphantly replied, this wasn't a mistake, Jerry. This was your mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore statement. And that was the definitive punctuation mark on the end of Freeman's incognito mission impossible. In his passionate recollections of his once in a lifetime journey, Freeman had remarked, if I live to be a hundred, I will never forget that pulse pounding night of playing hide and seek with shadowy men carrying weapons of war." But tragically, the world would lose the free-spirited and kind soul in 2001 when Freeman's prostate cancer, which he had mentioned was in remission in the 1997 Sun series, unfortunately advanced and took his life. But despite his days on earth being cut short, Freeman experienced adventures and accomplished fantastic feats that most people never come close to, even with a long and full life. The explorer told reporters at the Las Vegas Sun shortly after returning from his week in the wilderness, it was high adventure. I'm lucky, I'm just really lucky. Freeman later revealed that he hadn't planned to go public with his story because of fear over the possible legal risk especially since he never actually found the final 49ers inscription. After consulting lawyers, he began to speak more freely about his experience, but shared that the military was, quote, disappointed that he had entered the territory unauthorized. He never elaborated if there had been any other repercussions. Going back to the call-in radio show recording, we found a very interesting tidbit that allows us a bit more insight into what confidential information Freeman may have observed in Area 51. Without describing specifically what's in the photographs.
1: It's a magnificent clear photograph of Tapu's Lake taken in the daytime. And I had a powerful set of binoculars. Yes. It looked like a dry lake bed to me, nothing else. Well, that's what But at it night, is. it was mm-hmm. a different story. What did you see? I then? could clearly see what were security lights uh, on the perimeters, and I could see lights that opened and closed near the center of the lake. During the daytime, now I got within a mile of of the of the lake bed, and I I was getting a little bit concerned there because uh, I, I wasn't so concerned about ground security, but uh, airborne would have found me in a heartbeat because of absolutely. vegetation. Absolutely, absolutely. I uh, I was having my lunch in a little, well, a, a wadi, a little tiny wash, really, and I. Uh, I I felt vibration. I know I wasn't imagining it because there were rivulets of sand coming down just on the other side of this little wash and I could see them. And I thought, "Eh, well, hey, uh, (laughs) an earthquake. Well, then I realized, no, this is not an earthquake. It continued and continued for maybe nearly two minutes. It's something they're testing, either directly underground or I was feeling vibrations completely from Groom Lake. I don't know. Uh, I didn't see anything that I I would... uh, Justifiably say that. Uh, so, you spent exactly how much time in Area 51? I was in there a week. Oh, boy, talk about forbidden archaeology. Oh, I, I mean, I, I'll tell you right For now, that, Art. I mean, I have good backcountry skills, but I was very, very lucky. I think if they'd have caught me in there, they'd lit me up like a Roman candle.
0: In the end, the point Freeman constantly came back to and emphasized the most was that his passion laid strictly in learning and expanding his understanding of American history. He was happy that the intrigue of Area 51 might bring attention to his venture, but ultimately, he wished that a wider demographic would appreciate the strife that the lost 49ers underwent. This way, the hardy group of pioneers would not fade into the oblivion of forgotten history. He hoped that his journey into the area will spark an interest in others for American pioneer history. Knowing he would likely be banned from entering the premise after bringing his story to the public, Freeman expressed a hope for other archeologists and historians to continue the work where he left it, hopefully uncovering the seventh and final inscription. Though perhaps next time with Area 51's permission.
1: My interest, of
0: course, is archeological.
1: Uh, I would love to see these 49ers
0: brought to the fore as they should be. There is as, as relevant a group as, as a Donner Party. But Jerry Freeman, ever the fighter, ended his written recollection of his Area 51 operation with a pointed rebuttal. Well, for all of those quiet Americans out there, this expedition was for you. Yes, 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 hell yes.